summarize all the references back to last year's program. <laughs> so I have to tell you, my daughter Marissa is a no, no, she, she is a master gift giver. Okay, this is the truth. She no, yeah, she will plan months in advance, and she is one of those people like she listens when you make a remark about something. Like she, that sticks in her brain and she remembers. And like months later, this gift will appear and it'll be like, oh yeah, well back in February of 1983, you said that you liked this stuff. Right? One, one year for Christmas, she got me, it's in my office at home, a glass dry erase board, which is magic. Um, she's got me cool Bible charts. Um, her, for my birthday last year, her and her sister, we were, we were flipping through it was Facebook, wasn't it, or something? And somebody had posted this picture of these these glasses from when I was a kid. They were from Burger King in 1980 when The Empire Strikes Back came out, and they had the characters of The Empire Strikes Back on them. Okay, and I made I just made the and I mean this was like in the, the middle of the year or something. I made this casual remark. About, oh man, if I had a set of glasses like that, I would display those and blah, blah, blah. Well, sure enough, for my birthday this last year, guess what the two of them got me? They had tracked these glasses down on eBay. <laughs> I had this box with these glasses in it, which now, if you want to see them, they're in my office on the top shelf, proudly displayed. Connor got to see them this morning. Proudly displayed in my office there because. So it's really cool. You're going to really like what I got you this year. I'm sure I will. <laughs> you never fail. Now I bring this up because in America, almost the entire Christmas everything is based on gift giving. From Black Friday and the crazy shopping there to the, to the hustling on Christmas Eve for last minute gifts. Not that I've ever done that. <laughs> some people might. Of course, the, the retail industry directs massive energy into getting us to spend more and more and, and just so we can put more little wrapped trinkets under the tree. And every year, it's, it's like that. Now what I find a little ironic about that is that of all the traditions that kind of surround Christmas, like we have a Christmas tree, right? Okay, well that's a much later tradition that develops. You know, there's no, no Christmas trees in Bethlehem. Um, Bells, right? Okay, we, people, a lot of bells at Christmas. Well, that's a much later tradition, too. That's a European cathedral tradition. Um, all that sort of stuff. Eating ham, red and green. I mean, they definitely weren't eating any ham in Bethlehem, I guarantee you. Church Christmas programs, right? Okay. None of those are really directly connected to the Christmas story in the Bible. But gift giving actually is. It really is the original Christmas tradition, and it's the original gift givers that we're going to look at today. Now, I don't remember a couple of weeks back, on the first Sunday of Advent, we started by looking at the wicked King Herod, and we saw how in him and in the people around him, the people of Jerusalem and the religious leaders, we saw the wrong responses to Jesus. Herod was hostile toward Jesus and tried to kill him. The religious leaders were indifferent. They kind of threw out, oh yeah, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, and then they just went off on 
And the people of Jerusalem were disturbed. They were troubled. They had fear and uncertainty about what would happen. Then last week, Dr. Andrews showed us how Joseph is the last in the kingly line of David before Jesus. That Joseph was actually the rightful king. That's why he's listed in that genealogy. That genealogy is a genealogy of kings. And he's, in the, he's a son in the line of David. And of course you'll recall that in the Old Testament, God promises to David that someday a ruler would be on Israel's throne forever. And there's Joseph, who's in the line of David, who's, who's really the rightful king, doing work with his hands. Suddenly, with a young woman who's pregnant and is not technically his child, and being told by God it's going to be okay. And so, in Joseph, Dr. Andrews challenged us to ask Are we willing to accept the place God has for us? There's no way Joseph didn't know he was in the line of David. He knew it. But there he was. Are we willing to completely trust God? Because Joseph completely trusts God. Right? He's described as righteous. God appears to him in a dream. <coughs> what does he do? He does it. Are we willing to completely obey God? <coughs> well, today we're going to come back to the story in Matthew 2 that we began a couple weeks ago. But this time, as promised, we're going to look at it from the standpoint of the Magi those mysterious kings or wise men from the east. So let's read that once again. In Matthew chapter 2, we see the coming of the Magi. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Uh -huh. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they have seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I mean, they were really happy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country. So we've got these magi, the word meaning wise men. And we're told they're from the east, meaning the area generally of what we would have called the former Persian Empire, what we would call now the Middle East. So I want you to think 
Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, places like that. It would have been more like scholars, court officials, spiritual advisors. Not really kings as we tend to think of kings, more like a group of people who worked for kings. Now, being from the former Persian Empire, they would have been familiar with a variety of ancient texts. The Persians were, were very, um, very good at incorporating the religions of conquered peoples into what they did, and they maintained lots of libraries and records and, and were very learned. And so they would have been familiar with the Hebrew Bible. They very possibly would have been familiar with the writings of Daniel, because remember, Daniel at one time was basically the number two guy in the Persian Empire. So they probably would have, would have been familiar with him. Now we traditionally talk about three, because they bring three, three gifts are mentioned, right? But I guarantee you, they would have had a whole entourage. Okay? There would have been camels, and there would have been wagons probably, and soldiers to guard them, and cooks, and people to help them, and people to set up the tents as they were traveling, and people to take down the tents. It's like me when I go somewhere. Oh, no, <laughs> Their gifts and the ability for them to travel as far as they did across the Middle East tells us that these were, these were men of means. And hence, of course, the idea of kings has developed in that tradition. Now, over time, since the text tells us so little, it's very matter of fact, right? I mean, Matthew just writes, eh, so these wise men came from the east. Here they are. A whole tradition has grown up around the wise men, right? Okay? And so the three main figures now, over time, they have names. Melchior, Gaspar, and Balthazar. And depending on who's telling the traditions, they variously come from Yemen, we'll talk about this morning, Arabia, uh, Ethiopia, Syria, even in some traditions, India is one possible origin. A lot of the legends of the wise men tell us that they actually came to follow the star from different places, that they were actually from different places and all saw the star, and they actually met on the road as they were getting close to Jerusalem. And after meeting Jesus and then leaving a different way, we know that happens because that we're told in the scripture, that's 100% we know the way it happened. Tradition actually tells us that the three of them together went to India, where they built a church and where they served for the rest of their lives, and then they died. Now if you were to go to Cologne, Germany, at the Cathedral of Cologne, which if you ever have a chance to see it, it's very beautiful. There's a reliquary there. Now some of you are like, what's a reliquary? You're not gonna like this. A reliquary is a place where they keep the bones of someone important from the past. And there in Cologne is a reliquary that claims to have the bones of the wise men supposedly recovered in 326 A.D. from India by Helena, who was the mother of none other than Constantine. 
brought back to Europe, and eventually wound up in this very elaborate gold reliquary that is in the cathedral at Cologne. Now I'm gonna tell you straight up, I have no idea. They didn't have, we don't have DNA to compare, you know, the wise man's DNA against. I will tell you this, that almost all legends have some basis in fact behind them somewhere or another. For example, okay, you've all heard of King Arthur, right? Okay? You think, oh, well, yeah, it's, you know, he's in the movies and, you know, Bullfinch's mythology and, and all that kind of stuff. Okay? But there really was a King Arthur. Okay? Now, he didn't have a magic sword that, you know, his father was handed by the Lady of the Lake and then got stuck in a rock and he pulled it out at the right book and all could have it now. Yeah. Okay, but there really was King Arthur. And he really did unite the Britons at a time of the past. Also know that as humans, we are prone to fill in the details when none are recorded, right? We, we, we all do that, right? You know, something happens and you know, even if you're, you're driving along the road and you see that there was a car accident, right? If you're like me, you start to imagine, I wonder what happened. How did that happen? Somebody, well, you start to fill in the details. Oh, well, it looks like, you know, like I'm, you know, NCIS or something. Well, clearly they, uh, person tried to turn left in front of this other person and they got hit. And now because there was an accident from a left turn here, Cedar Falls is gonna build a roundabout now. <laughs> bitter about the roundabouts. <laughs> I'm just saying that I feel the same way about roundabouts that I feel about raisins. <laughs> but whatever of those traditions are true and not true, it is clear they are important figures in Matthew's telling of the birth of Jesus. And that's for a couple of reasons. And the first is the implication of their gifts. These gifts that are fit for a divine king. So if you, if you want to see the gifts in their proper light. You have to remember the purpose of Matthew's gospel. And remember, Dr. Andrews had that really cool slide last week that had all the gospel writers and the purpose of yeah. I thought about putting that up again, and I was like, let me remind you what the purpose of Matthew's is. And his main purpose, clear from how he presents the genealogy and how he presents Jesus, is to show Jesus is the promised king in the line of David. He's the Messiah. He's the promised ruler of Israel. But, also part of his agenda is to show us that Jesus is not just for Israel. He's for everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. If you think back to the Old Testament, and you get to Genesis chapter 12, right? Because you got the first 11 chapters, there's all this weird prehistory stuff, right? You got the creation, and the, you got the flood, right? And, and the um, Wednesday night Bible study, we were talking about the Nephilim and all this kind of stuff. And then um, you got the Tower of Babel, God scatters everybody, and then you get then all this like world history stuff. And then you get to chapter 12, and God finds this guy. His name's Abram at that time, but it's going to change his name to Abraham. And he finds this guy, and he says, Hey, you know what? I'm gonna you're gonna pack your stuff up and you're gonna follow me, and you're gonna cross around the desert and go to this place. And I'm going to make you a great, God doesn't have a child at this point, but he's like, I'm going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to give you this really sweet chunk of land. And all the peoples of the world are going to be blessed through you. 
Thus we see God initiating the plan of salvation, right? He's promised it all the way back in Genesis 3. But now he's really starting to, starting to bring it about. And he promises to bless the entire world through Abraham's descendant. And so here, now to go back to Matthew, we got these wise men coming from the east, and we see Gentiles right away coming to Jesus shortly after his arrival in Bethlehem. Now, we're on to, you know, in our Christmas plays and in our um, nativity scenes and all this, the, the Magi are always coming on the same night, right? But, okay, you understand the story says they were in a house. They, they managed to get out of the stable. They didn't have to spend their whole time in Bethlehem. They, they ended up somewhere close by, okay? And they come, and, and these Gentile wise men, they get it. They come and they know they, they're looking for the king of the Jews, right? They go, hey, where are we going to find the king of the Jews? It's one that was just born. In fact, it's interesting, as a side note here, something to just file away in your brain. If you read through the Gospels, the only people who actually ever acknowledge Jesus as king of the Jews are Gentiles. The wise men in the beginning and Pilate at the end. The Jews never acknowledge him as king of the Jews. In fact, what do they say when Pilate says, don't you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? What do they say? We have no king but Caesar. Oh. Sealed their fate then, didn't they? Seems the Gentiles get it more than the Jews did. And then Matthew's going to finish his gospel, right? The very end. Jesus is risen. He makes a charge to his disciples. And what does he tell them to do? Take the gospel to all peoples, not just to the Jews, to everybody. That he's for everybody. The good news is for everybody. Everybody. That means everybody. Even the people, maybe especially the people that we find on the margins distasteful to us. For the really bad sinners. Forever. For all the people. The gospel. Jesus is for all of us. And so the one that's born king of the Jews, he dies, he rises as the savior of all peoples, and then tells us to go out and take that message out. And he's one day going to return, not as king of the Jews, but as king of kings and lord of lords. And Matthew begins and ends by making sure that we know that Jesus is for everyone everywhere. And so these magis, who get it, they bring these kingly divine gifts, right? Gold, representing Jesus' kingship and royalty. And frankincense, the incense that's burned in the prayer time at the temple. And this myrrh, the perfume it's used for embalming the dead. Gifts of great value and of prophetic import. And where Herod sought to bring only death, and most of Israel only gives him rejection, the Magi come and they make an offering to the baby Jesus. An offering that demonstrates his kingship, his divinity, and prophesies his death. And it's in these Magi whether there was really just three of them, or 30 of them, or a whole entourage, or however many people came, that we see the proper response to Jesus. And remember in the first sermon, 
we saw how Herod, the religious leaders, and the people all showed the wrong responses. Particularly saddening there, of course, is the religious leaders and the people because they should have known better. Herod wasn't really a Jew and was a rotten guy anyway, so we're not kind of surprised with him. But the religious leaders and the people should have known better. And so if we want to be like Joseph that Dr. Andrews talked about last week, if we want to trust God and obey God, the Magi show us the response that we need to have to Jesus. The Magi show us we are to worship and to give from what we have. Notice that even before they give their gifts, the text tells us they fell down and worshiped Jesus. Now when it says fell down there, this is not like our typical nativity scene, right? I think you can see it. Oh yeah, they're like kneeling down, right? Okay, guys kneeling down. Okay, it's usually what your nativity scene shows, right? They might be kneeling down, offering their treasure boxes to, to Jesus, that sort of thing. The word there means they fell on their faces. Especially when it's combined with the word worship. They prostrated themselves on the ground before Jesus. They fell down and then it says they worshiped, which also is from a word that means to prostrate yourself on the ground. And we're given a, a clear picture of men who are not just bowing before a king because that you would bow before a king, right? But these are men who are falling down before God. They understand whose presence they are in. This baby is not merely just going to be another, you know, king. God has, has come to dwell among humans. And they physically acknowledge they are in the presence of not just a king, but of God himself, as they prostrate themselves and worship on the ground. And then they give out of the treasures that they have some gifts to the newborn God king. In fact... Jeannie pointed out they're of great service to Jesus and his family. Because Jesus and his family are about to go on a two-year forced vacation to Egypt. And some expensive treasures are going to help finance that trip rather nicely. I find it very, very, very ironic how the narrative is designed to show us Jesus is king of the Jews but that in his actual incarnation as king, it is only Gentiles who acknowledge him as such. The wise men, when compared to the religious leaders and the people, are almost a living prophecy of Israel's response compared to the Gentiles. So what about us? What's our response? Is it to worship? And I don't just mean we come here and we sing a couple songs and, you know, you thank God for your food. I mean, that's, that's great. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. I like to sing a couple songs. In fact, we sang a song. You know, I used to never like that song, Do You Hear What I Hear? Until last year, we played it. That's a profound song, if you really think about what it says. our lives before Jesus, the God King, and present all of our devotion to him? Are we going to do, as Paul is going to later write, all things for the glory of God? Because that's what the wise men do. And then, do we offer of ourselves and 
financial stuff. What about our time? What about our voices to share the coming of the king with other people? What about our gifts and our talents? And to go back to what Paul writes, are we willing to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to our Lord to serve and love and do as he would call us? Advent gives, gives us a tremendous opportunity as we end one year and begin the next to evaluate ourselves a little bit, not just to, to think about Jesus and his coming, which is awesome and beautiful and give some gifts and have some fun with family and all that stuff, but to think a little bit about our lives and to think, as we have over these last three weeks, about some of the people in the, in the Christmas narrative and to see which one of them or ones of them do we identify the most with. Have we been kind of like Herod? Maybe you've been hostile to Jesus. It's possible. Or like the religious leaders. Maybe you're just indifferent. Focused on your own thing, doing your own thing. Jesus, yeah, whatever. i got to get back over here to this. Or what about the people? Maybe fearful. You're worried about the future, about the possibility of change. Or how about like Joseph? trusts and obeys God without question. That's pretty awesome. And what about the Magi who worship and give just they know how? My hope and my prayer for myself and for all of us is that as we move through this Christmas season and into a new year, that all of us would be able to be a little more like Joseph and like the Magi and a little less of everything else. That we would, a little more in the new year, give ourselves in worship and service to the God King who was born in the manger, Jesus our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for our Lord Jesus who came into the world as this, this little baby